Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Asteroid seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Lindsay Gray and on this edition we'll feature Michelle Kovacevic with a radio <laughs> active story and John August catches up with some treatments for hepatitis C. But first, here's the latest in science news with Tilly Berlin. <laughs> First bit of news comes from footwear. Now, footwear. yeah, it's always been quite hard to tell when shoes started commonly being used in history. Now, this isn't because they didn't have catalogues, Ev. It's because ye oldie shoes were made out of material that erode over time. Things like animal skin, ropes, string, that sort of stuff. Do our current shoes not erode over time? Well, I guess they do, but we wear, you know, we treat them with all sorts of things. Yeah. (laughs) So until now, the the earliest known shoes were sort of like those rope sandals that you attach to your feet with string. They were around 15, 12 thousand years ago. Is this what we used to call... Oh, oh, that's that's a long time ago. That's an old shoe. That is an old shoe. (laughs) That was the oldest one we had evidence for. They're coming back into fashion now. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Anyway, like getting a better picture about who was shod and who wasn't uh, has been revealed by these researchers in the US. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that they have sprinted ahead of the pack. Oh, sweet. (laughs) By showing that wearing shoes a lot in your lifetime makes a consistent difference to the middle toes, like your your couple of middle toes. Because when you're wearing bare feet, and you're wearing bare feet, when you walk with bare bare feet, feet, you actually use those middle toes to give you traction when you're pushing off and when you're trotting along a fair bit. And the middle toes sort of build up to be relatively more robust, so relatively bigger uh, in relation to your foot and your body size. I'm not talking freaky toes. I just mean they're a bit bigger. So does that mean how this little toe with the wearing of shoe is lying dormant? Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) When you've got some sort of shoes, then it's just your big toe that's doing the work and all the other ones just slack off. So the big toe is getting a bit tired? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a toe. Well, (laughs) that's one way to look at it. Let's anthropomorphize. It's getting toey. (laughs) Oh, Evan. No, that's a different connotation, but go on. Now, when they figured out this little gem about uh, the toes, they looked at this 40,000-year-old Chinese skeleton and an almost 30,000-year-old Russian skeleton. They compared it to some Neanderthal feet and some modern examples of Native American and Inuit skeletons because they knew whether or not they wore shoes. Anyway, the Neanderthals had hefty middle toes, so their middle toes were doing some workout. They probably didn't wear any shoes at all. Or, you know, maybe just some animal skins to protect their little tootsies in the really cold. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they noticed... <laughs> yeah, Ugg boots, exactly. Oh, I wonder if Ugg boots make a difference. I digress. The, uh, <laughs> the Chinese and the Russian skeleton individuals, though, they had lightly built middle toes, meaning their middle toes were slacking off, meaning they Washies. were in shoes. Yes. Oh, my God, what yeah. an amazing... <laughs> 
piece of work. Wow, that better not be sarcasm. Cause the <laughs> next, me? The, the next time you're picking out your favourite pair of pumps, Ev, you should spare a thought for your big toe, maybe, yeah? He's picking up all the slack from those lazy middle toes conspiring with your footwear. Hey, I actually did um, have a pair of Ugg boots once. What about people that wear them out of the house? Stop it! <laughs> Just stop it. Stop it till he's coming after you. Exactly. Uh. Now, um, <laughs> speaking of coming after people, uh, in the news this week with computers, uh, you know how computer recognition software, since, you know, we all started having illusions of, of great terror coming upon us from every single angle, that we're sort of using, you know, in, in airports, there's more security right. in all sorts of places. We want computers to kind of go off as soon as there's an indication that that someone looks like a terrorist. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's, there's this new research that they're proposing that instead of using one single shot of a person as an identifier, we should replace it with an image that combines several shots of that one person, sort of making a morphed sort of... Oh, that's cool. Then they can kind of do a matrix type thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, when they tested this out on uh, current facial recognition software, it actually increased the computer's ability to recognise a person by 100%. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Now, this new technique was actually discovered by psychologists. Don't get me started. Oh. And <laughs> they were looking into why humans are usually great at recognising someone they know, but we're not, like, in a photo, being able to identify them. But if you're shown someone that you don't know, and then you're shown some more photographs and asked whether it's that person, it's a lot more difficult, okay, because you're not familiar we haven't with got them. the whole we haven't got the whole picture. Yeah, exactly. And because if you're trying to identify someone you're not already familiar with, the conditions of the photo itself become very important. Things like the light, the expression on the person, the angles, you know, like it, it, it yeah, complicates those, the situation. Absolutely. Yeah, so what these researchers have done is, as I say, morphed several photos into one and making it an average photo of the person and it's a lot easier to identify. Now, they tested it on the same software that we use at the Australian Customs Service and you are going to love this. The, it's, it's publicly available on the internet as well. Sweet. It's got this feature where you can go and upload a picture of yourself and the software scans 31,000 known celebrities and it provides you with a list of the celebrities you most resemble. Excellent. It would be a very long list for me. Obviously. <laughs> now, the researchers used this, um, this particular feature to upload one single shot of celebrities they knew were in the database. And the computer got it right half the time. Then they uploaded morphed images of those celebrities and it got it right 100% of the time, right? Yeah. Pretty big jump. That's a big jump. I submitted a photo of myself, of yeah. course. I mean, it's research. <laughs> yeah, and what'd you get? Well, I got, I got three matches. <clears throat> Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> yes. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> and... It's uncanny. <laughs> Peter O'Toole. <laughs> you got Peter O'Toole. I got Reese with a surgeon. Hey, but I want to know is what era? Oh, yes, Peter the, old, the old era, let me tell you. Well, at least that was the photo they returned. I don't look anything like them, Evan. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to convince myself that the Peter O'Toole was a red herring because I didn't morph a lot of images of How, myself into yeah, one. So I, it's not like I was really testing the results. I think you need to put a lot more effort into this <laughs> test. I got this uh, from ABC Science Online. So you can go to abc.net.au slash science and find the story about the computer recognising Mr Average and Link through from there.
next we have John August looking at a drug for treating hepatitis C which has been developed by academics operating outside mainstream pharmaceutical firms making their own connections with manufacturers. In late 2006, Sunil Shaunek, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Imperial College in the UK, announced that his team, including researchers in the London School of Pharmacy, the Hammersmith Hospital and colleagues in India, had developed a new way of synthesising pegylated interferon for the treatment of hepatitis C. Clinical trials were planned for 2007. The process of making this protein involved opening up the interferon protein and inserting a sugar molecule called PEG into it. The modified molecule persists in the body for longer because of the associated PEG molecule and can cure hepatitis C in many patients. The original patent coated the interferon molecule with PEG sugar. However, because the PEG sugar molecule was inserted into the interferon molecule, it was not claimed by the original patent and the drug can be manufactured by independent factories at a much lower cost. Hepatitis C afflicts around 200 million people worldwide. It's transmitted by infected bodily fluids, and a quarter of its sufferers will actually recover naturally, but the remainder develop a chronic condition which can cause severe liver damage and cancer. The current treatment, including pegylated interferon and the antiviral drug ribavirin, can cure the infection in half of cases, but this treatment is very expensive and out of reach to 80% of patients worldwide. Professor Shaunak says his aim is to provide drugs to people who would not have been able to afford them, so they aren't competing with the large drug companies. This is certainly true, but the UK Health Administration is planning to use the drug with estimates that it would actually save 75% in treatment. So there is going to be some competition in first world markets. Professor Shaunak has hailed the work as pioneering ethical pharmaceuticals, where the objective is to address the global burden of disease rather than seek out treatments and markets which are the most profitable. While his discovery developed from the earlier patented version of interferon, this is exactly the sort of thing that the large pharmaceutical firms do to each other in their big game of chess. The difference is that here we have an academic able to do the research and forge connections with manufacturers and distributors. Pharmaceutical companies claim that they need $800 million to develop a new drug. Still, these firms spend a lot on marketing and lobbying of politicians. The research costs for drugs are overwhelmed by marketing and other costs. Firms also try to maintain their hold on patented drugs by evergreening them after the patents have lapsed. This might involve abusing the patent process, bullying smaller generic manufacturers, or just continuing to hold onto the trademark and trying to marginalise generics. Such firms do not seem to be living on the brink about to collapse if they don't make sufficient profits. Rather, evergreening and similar strategies are anti-competitive. Rather than operating in a competitive market, which would keep them honest, they try to control that market as much as they can. But in contrast to such negative views of pharmaceutical companies, Professor Tom Faunce from the Australian National University has a more positive outlook. He says that pharmaceutical firms should take inspiration from Shaunak's approach and that it may stimulate many mutually beneficial public-private partnerships in Australia. Founce feels that Shanak's work shows what can be done working within the existing system to make pharmaceutical research more responsive to the global burden of disease.
Pegylated interferon is only the first drug Professor Shaunek has worked on. He is pursuing several others in an attempt to address global health issues rather than just diseases which happen to be the most profitable to treat. Let's hope the initiative is successful. That was John August showing how you don't need big pharmaceutical companies to make a difference to health worldwide. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. The sun is hot, the sun is not a place where we could live, but here on Earth there'd be no life without the light it gives. We need its light, we need its heat, the sunlight that we see, the sunlight comes from They might be giants with the sun is a ball of incandescent gas. Radiation is something we encounter every day, and yet the word still evokes fear in many an educated mind. Michelle Kovacevic is here to eradicate the many misunderstandings in our radiant lives and tell us the difference between good and bad radiation. April 26, 1986, Ukraine. August 6, 1945, Japan. November 23, 2006, London. Three isolated dates may not seem to have much in common, but these three dates have altered the course of humankind forever, changing people's lives, their health and even their DNA. On these three dates, radiation, in the words of Bon Jovi, gave itself a bad name. So why are we so scared of this radiation thing? I mean, it's just energy, isn't it? Well, yes, but the distinction that you have to make is whether you're A, talking about waves or particles, or B, whether you're talking about ionising or non-ionising radiation. On the wavy side of things, electromagnetic radiation is a wave, and how harmful the radiation is depends on the frequency, i.e. the speed, and the wavelength of the wave. When we most commonly think of radiation, we think of ionising radiation, which is the so-called bad radiation, the stuff that gives you skin cancer, UV radiation, the stuff that you use to see bones, x-rays, 
or the big bad mother of electromagnetic radiation, gamma rays, which I'll come to later. So let's start with the good type. Imagine your life without non-ionizing radiation. Well, first of all, you'd die because the energy we get from the sun in the form of thermal radiation is essential to life on Earth. And you wouldn't be able to use a microwave or a radio because they rely on non-ionizing radiation waves too. Oh, and whilst we're at it, you would also have to live in the dark because visible light is a form of non-ionizing radiation. Hmm, so no heat, no light, or no modern appliances. Sounds like a pretty bleak existence, huh? In terms of frequency, as we move up the electromagnetic spectrum, we begin to encounter the bad boys of radiation. The reason that we hear all these bad things is because ionizing radiation has enough energy to ionize atoms and hence cause many problems. Ionization is the process of adding or removing electrons to convert an atom into an ion. UV radiation, X-rays and gamma rays have much shorter wavelengths and larger frequencies than visible light, therefore they are more powerful ionizers. Now all this gets a little bit technical, so I'm only going to briefly mention two types of particle radiation, alpha and beta radiation. Now before you physicists start complaining, yes I realise that there are many more types of particles that can be emitted from atoms, but for simplicity's sake I thought I'd stick to these two only. Charged particles can be emitted by an unstable nucleus as either a positively charged alpha particle or a negatively charged beta particle. Alpha particles are bigger, which means that they travel at a lower speed than other forms of radiation and can be stopped by a sheet of paper. Beta particles are halted by a sheet of aluminium and for comparison's sake, gamma radiation needs a one metre sheet of lead to stop it, so that tells you how penetrating it is. Contrary to what you might think, however, alpha and beta radiation can be more harmful than gamma in some cases. Radioactive materials usually release alpha or beta particles. Radioactive materials usually release alpha or beta particles, so if they are ingested, as was seen in the recent radiation poisoning case with Alexander Lividenko, they can cause a hell of a lot of damage in living tissue. And the problem with radiation is that because it affects your DNA, the mutations can be passed on for several generations, making it one of the most long-lasting diseases known to man. Well, never mind all those scare tactics, as most of us will never be exposed to the kinds of levels of radiation that would induce that kind of response. Indeed, contrary to what I just said, not all ionizing radiation is bad for you. You may have heard of the phrase background radiation, which is ionizing radiation that your body copes with all of the time. You can be exposed to background radiation through smoke detectors, emissions from burning fossil fuels, and emissions from medical processes, even every time you fly in an aeroplane. However, it's only when you exceed your exposure by an exorbitant amount that there is ever any cause for concern. This is the reason that you're restricted to a certain amount of CAT scans and X-rays every year. Ionizing radiation is bad if, like an inexperienced owner with a salivating rotwheeler, you don't know how to harness it or protect yourself from it correctly. But ionizing radiation can save lives. All you have to look at is something like radiation therapy and cancer treatment. And it also has major applications in many areas of research. So radiation isn't really that scary after all. As long as you remember to slip, slap, slap, you'll be protecting yourself from the most common yet vital form of potentially harmful radiation. Thanks for that, Michelle. And for those budding scientists or historians listening, email us at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's two, the number. If you know the three major nuclear disasters Michelle mentioned at the beginning of the segment. And 
finally, for the news that didn't make the news, we have Michelle and we also have Joanne and Ian and myself here in the studio to have a chat about. I don't know, Michelle, can you tell us what we're going to chat about? Well, I read something just recently, I think it's been all over the news as well, about this girl who switched her blood type after a liver transplant. Have you guys read at all, anything at all about that in no, the recent I news? I did hear about that. Ooh. And I'd heard they're trying to do whatever happened with her naturally, they're trying to do deliberately in other patients. They're trying to replicate it. Well, I mean, you'd want to replicate something like that. I think from what I understood, she had a liver transplant and after three years or something like that, her blood type developed into the same blood type as the donor liver, which means that she didn't actually have to take any more medication um, the immunosuppressing yeah that would reject medication right. the, yeah that would reject the um the the donor so she doesn't have to be on medication at all anymore I think it's the first case that they've ever seen in the entire world where something like this happened so if they can figure out how her body came to accept the organ as its own then it could be a great thing for transplants worldwide yeah. my understanding of it is that stem cells was it the liver that was transplanted yeah the liver stem yeah. cells from the liver got into her bone marrow. And started producing blood cells. So they were mm. compatible cells. And they started, basically, the immune system is controlled from the marrow. And so it recognised the new organ and her own body. So it would have been tragic if it had just become like the host immune system and rejected her whole body and accepted the liver. Mm. But instead it accepts <laughs> both. And so it's just amazing that it's happened by accident. Yeah. Look, pardon my ignorance, guys, but what on earth is a blood type? I mean, what makes A, B, A, B? I mean, what is all this business? Does anyone actually know? Why, why would one be A and one be O negative? It's to do with um, the antibodies in your blood. Right. Um, so someone who's got O blood type means that they don't have antibody, antibody, anti- antibody A or B. I've never actually had a, a blood test. Apparently when you get a blood test, you've got to ask for them to specifically test you for what blood type you are because I've had blood tests before and I've never been told my blood type. I always forget to ask them to test me for it. But right. You'd think don't they ask, could, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Better to live in ignorance, perhaps. <laughs> um, I also read another couple of interesting things. Um, the other interesting thing that I read in, the, I think it was the Daily Telegraph a couple of days ago. Was, I'm sure it was interesting then. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was about some research that um, scientists had done about um, with pregnant mice and seeing whether obese pregnant mice had heavier birth weight mice and so and that sort of directly correlated to somewhat correlated to humans how many mice (laughs) fat mice (laughs) (laughs) um directly correlated sort of to humans who have so pregnant women who are have a high fat diet because they fed the mice like a high fat western diet and um yeah, pregnant women who don't really watch their weight, who eat for two, <laughs> as the saying goes, have higher birth weight children and therefore their children are more prone to be obese as right. well. Well, I mean, have you guys read anything about obesity being genetically linked or if it's just an eating habit? Or I mean, I, th- I think I find the whole obesity topic quite interesting and whether or not it's an intrinsic desire to eat or whether or not it's just people being fat and lazy or something like that. Well, I I was exposed to some research quite recently about overfed caterpillars. (laughs) And what they did, they had a a series of uh, treatments where they had 
poorly nourished caterpillars with a low carbohydrate diet, car- low carbohydrate and fat. Atkins caterpillars. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. I don't know if they were high protein, but anyway. And then they had a treatment where you had high carbohydrate, high fat caterpillars. And then they looked at the survivorship over several generations of these caterpillars' babies. And they actually found that after a, a couple of generations, maybe two or three, the offspring of the treatment that were fed heaps and heaps of fat and heaps and heaps of carbohydrate ended up um, obtaining the ability over time to excrete the excess fat and carbohydrate. They didn't end up being as obese, even though those, uh, sorry, the next generations of caterpillars were also fed the same amount as their their forebearers. Mm. Um, They were actually able to excrete all that excess fat and carbohydrate. They didn't get obese. Mm. So while we may, I mean, (laughs) whether humans are anything like caterpillars, I don't know. Though my brother has a baby and it does remind me of a larvae. (laughs) But anyway... um, whether humans are anything like caterpillars, perhaps in a few generations' time, even if these families are continuing to eat this high-fat, you know, low-nutrient food, maybe we'll learn how to just shed the fat and not end up, you know, everyone being obese. It does seem to Who be knows? genetic. There's a lot of studies I've seen where they talk about it being body shapes. Oh, and right. so that, you know, the people who go on TV and say, look, I lost all this weight and I did this and I did that, generally they're people who were kind of slim or athletic to start with. And they, you know, had a had lifestyle their standard, change. Yeah, they may not have even had a lifestyle change. They were just that way, and they got hired for the ad. Oh, mm. oh. Little we all know about the places that you've been. Think you're hidden there, but everyone has seen. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast on our website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were Ian Wolfe, Michelle Kovacevic, Johan Chang, um, myself, Lindsay Gray, and of course, Tilly Berlin. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Lindsay Gray. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Take a